This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Some called him brave. Others thought he was willfully ignorant. And most just thought he was mad. Colonel Robert Johnson didn't care, though. He had a point to prove and would not be dissuaded. That's why, on September 25th of 1820, Johnson set out to do one of the most dangerous activities in the newly formed United States of America. He would eat a tomato. Yep, a tomato. Before becoming a staple in diets worldwide, the tomato was practically anathema to Europeans at home and in the colonies. However, during the age of colonization, Europeans pillaged plenty of the Americas and took large quantities of valuables, including food, back to their home countries. Many of the foods that we've come to consider European staples today, such as potatoes and tomatoes, originated in the Americas. The Aztecs were eating tomatoes as early as 700 CE and likely introduced them to Spanish conquistadors who, in turn, brought them back to Europe. Some new delicacies, like cacao, were greeted with delight. Others, like the potato and the tomato, were only met with skepticism. The strange shapes and colors didn't always endear the new foods to the Europeans. Once most people got over their fear of the unknown, they cheerfully began incorporating some of these new ingredients into their cooking. However, some were unwilling to take indigenous folks' word for it, and decided to conduct their own studies into whether these plants were healthy or deadly. One of the earliest references to tomatoes in European literature was made by Pietro Andrea Mattioli, an Italian herbalist. In the mid-1500s, Pietro described the tomato as a golden apple and suggested that it was likely a member of the nightshade family or perhaps some kind of mandrake. From there, rumors about tomatoes took two paths. The first was one that Pietro originally intended, that tomatoes were a mild aphrodisiac and therefore a sinful food and an obstacle to salvation. The second rumor made tomatoes seem downright lethal. John Girard, an English herbalist, published his most well-known work, Herbal, in 1597. Girard was heavily inspired by other herbalists, although he might not have grasped what he was writing. Girard plagiarized huge portions of other herbal books, which were already inaccurate, and, in short, created the worst game of telephone to be played in the 16th-century publishing industry. In Girard's copy-and-paste opinion, parts of the tomato plant were highly poisonous. Some thought that tomatoes were only safe to eat in warmer climates like Mesoamerica, but might make for good garden ornaments. This attitude prevailed in Britain and British colonies like New Jersey. Think of this as sort of like iffy information from a TikTok video without the ability to go to a medical doctor or a scientist and ask them for the facts. 
Religious fervor and fear of nasty demise led plenty of people to vilify the tomato. Even the fruit's color seemed to scream danger. The bright, vivid reds that seemed to allude to lust, danger, and death. It might seem unusual, and it's easy for us to joke about the ridiculousness of being afraid of a tomato, but oddly enough, there seem to be genuine cases of people getting sick after eating tomatoes. Of course, it wasn't the food. It was the tableware. You see, the majority of the people who could afford to try tomatoes, and were theoretically dying from them, were wealthy people. Unlike poor folks who had wooden or clay plates and spoons, the wealthy used pewter. And pewter was a metal with a specifically high lead content that would leach into the food. Tomatoes are extremely acidic. As it happened, acid brought out the poison in the pewter and led people to getting sick. Since no one knew where the poison was really coming from, the poor tomato got the blame. Doctors counseled against consuming any tomatoes, although some chose to ignore them and survived. Colonel Robert Johnson was one of those people. He was disgusted by what he considered gross misinformation and was determined to prove that tomatoes weren't, in fact, dangerous. They were healthy and delicious. He had been eating them frequently and hadn't suffered any ill effects. Johnson had found the fruit while traveling abroad and brought it home with him. He even hosted tournaments among his neighbors, who liked to live on the edge to see which of them could grow the largest tomato. In September of 1820, Johnson trooped down to the courthouse in Salem, New Jersey to stand against scientific and religious precedent to defend his favorite snack. Setting the basket of tomatoes down next to him, he reached in and, to the horror of the crowd, pulled out a big, ripe red one. Firmly staring down the masses who had stopped to watch, Johnson took a bite, then another, and then another. He consumed the entire basket while the residents of Salem watched and waited for him to fall down dead before their eyes. But he didn't to the morbid disappointment of his neighbors. Instead, he had a great time, and the tomato's reputation began to be rehabilitated. A couple of years later, tomato recipes would spread across the United States. While the accounts of the tomato trial of Salem, New Jersey, might have been exaggerated, people finally got the nudge. They needed to realize tomatoes are delightful in any form. And then, of course, it was up to the cooks to, uh, catch up with the times. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. 
When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Some inventions are so successful, they change the way we speak. When we have a cold and need to blow our nose, we don't ask for a tissue. We ask for a Kleenex. And if we cut ourselves on a knife in the kitchen, we don't reach for an adhesive bandage. We grab a Band-Aid, even when that may not be the brand we have on hand. That's how important certain creations are to the zeitgeist. But one such invention isn't tied to a particular brand or company. It stands alone as an achievement all on its own. It's been widely considered the best thing since, well, ever. Bread is not a new construct. It's been around in some fashion for roughly 30,000 years. However, one man believed that he could improve upon it in a unique way. His name was Otto Frederick Rovetter from Davenport, Iowa. Born in 1880, Otto was a jeweler and an optometrist, but was always tinkering with something on the side. He used the skills that he picked up making and repairing jewelry to invent all sorts of other new machines. One such device was designed to do something people were already doing on their own in their kitchens. However, Otto's contraption would remove all of the efforts and sliced fingers from the equation. He wanted to build an automatic bread slicer. And Otto went all in. He sold all of the jewelry stores that he owned to pay for the research and development necessary to build it. A prototype was constructed around 1912, but after a fire wiped out both the machine and its blueprints in 1917, his progress was set back a number of years. Then, in 1927, he cracked the problem and developed a machine that not only sliced a loaf of bread into equal portions, but wrapped it as well. It was immediately patented, and by the summer of the following year, the first loaf of sliced bread hit the shelves. The machine itself was soon manufactured en masse, allowing bakeries and grocers to slice and sell their own bread. For homemakers, which were mostly women at the time, it meant no more sharp knives and doctor's visits to have stitches put in. Life had been made just a little bit easier. Sliced bread became a staple of kitchens everywhere for the next 15 years thanks to the popularity of Wonder Bread, sold by the Continental Baking Company. In 1943, however, the slicing came to a halt as America entered World War II. The war effort meant all sorts of materials, such as rubber and nylon, were collected for making airplane wings, uniforms, and tank treads. 
Food also became scarce as civilians sent what they could to the troops overseas. Rationing was soon implemented across the country. The lack of butter and sugar led to the creation of unique cakes baked with all kinds of ingredients substituted in. Boiled raisins were used instead of sugar, while vinegar was swapped in when there wasn't enough flour. But one culinary creation that took a hit was sliced bread. In fact, automatically sliced bread wasn't just kept off the shelves, it was outlawed. The head of the War Foods Administration, Claude Wickard, believed that not slicing the bread would save on wax paper usage. And no sliced bread meant no more automatic slicing machines, which required large amounts of steel to manufacture. Well, to the people stuck at home making meals for their families and already dealing with all kinds of restrictions, the sliced bread ban was a step too far. Letters started pouring into newspapers and magazines from the women responsible for getting their children and spouses out the door in a timely manner. Having to slice upwards of 40 pieces of bread a day took too long and left them prone to mishaps with the knife. In addition, Mayor LaGuardia of New York City told bakeries with automatic slicers that they could keep using them despite the ban. This put the city's bakeries at odds with each other since many did not own their own slicers. All in all, the National Slice Bread Ban only lasted a few months and was officially killed on March 8th of 1943. Giving up stockings and wire hangers were one thing, but having to slice one's own bread? That would go down in history as an idea that had never been fully baked. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.